If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. And on today's show, we've got sports writer and broadcaster Maggie Hendricks. If you are impressed with yourself for baking your way through the pandemic, well, she's been doing baking and sewing. So don't feel so great about yourself, my friends, just yet. I am your host, Brad Burke. I am a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me on the line this week, it is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer Gareth Hughes. Gareth, not in our Brooklyn bureau. He is uh, holed up on vacation somewhere. Gareth, how are you enjoying the waning days of our pandemic summer? Oh, dude, I'm upstate in the Catskills. This is where Brooklynites go to get away from the city in the summer if you can't afford the Hamptons. So, you know, I'm keeping it I'm keeping it on trend. Um, pandemic summer, you know, my birthday's coming up next week. I was joking with someone last week, like, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, oh, I'm going to have my birthday in the pandemic. That's a bummer. By the time this is over, we're all going to have pandemic birthday. So, <laughs> yeah, me you know, too. It's coming up in, in like a month after that. Yep, exactly. So then my kids are in October. We've already started preparing them to not have a party. Uh, my son's on Halloween. I said, hey, even if we can't go trick-or-treating on Halloween, it's still your birthday, buddy. You'll get plenty of candy and cake. Nice. So, right. What was the joke that it's March 160th? <laughs> that does, that feels pretty good. Um, I think Ken Jennings made that on Twitter. <laughs> well, hey, um, big shout out to everybody who reached out to us last week about our first narrative podcast, our, our audio doc. Pick your, pick your terminology however you want about my wife's uh, swim team from 2001, the Denison-Kenyon rivalry. Heard from people from both schools. Lots of great feedback. Lots of people tuning in. Great write-up about us in The Athletic from our, our boy, Richard Deitch. And a special sorry to every one of you tuning back in expecting more long-form documentary <laughs> content. Don't have it yet. <laughs> so maybe we'll do something like that again. Uh, but don't plan on hey. it. Back to, our usual, uh, back to our usual frivolity, Gareth. Brad, just I want to say personally and for all the listeners, great work. Congratulations. That was the definition of what started as a passion project and then kind of came to consume your life. But you did a great, great job with it. And um, I don't know. We've talked about doing some more of it. It does take an incredible amount of work, but you deserve <laughs> a lot of credit for making something of that quality um, on your own, just cause you wanted to. So nice work. Well, thank you, my friend. And, um, and look, we're going to get back on the horse this week, talking random stuff, uh, you know, that, that the people in sports want to talk about that has nothing to do with sports. You and me t continuing our, our uh, late summer of Stephen King later by talking pet cemetery, but in lieu of a cancer update, Gareth, you had said you wanted to share something surprisingly moving with me today. And then we talked about, well, should, should we both do that? And I said, I don't have anything that I can think of. So, Gareth, the floor is all yours. Uh, where are you going with this? Okay, so I will say that since I was diagnosed with cancer, I will 
Right at the drop of a hat, I'll tell anyone I love them. I do have a playlist I'm starting of songs that have made me cry. I'll share that when it gets to a good length. Um, but I was reading this story out of nowhere recently, and it touched me in a really out of left field, profound way. So, Brad, I wanted to know have you heard the story of Eddie Van Halen and the death of Dimebag Daryl? Okay, no. So, Dimebag Daryl came up in our conversation just a few weeks ago with Maury Brown. And right. I have not heard the I have not heard this story. Okay, so I think like you know, I think for whatever reason, Pantera just exists in my head as like the hardest band from when we were teenagers. And like, I don't know, at our school you would see like the vulgar display of power t-shirt or far beyond driven. Like that record went to number one. And so we had a car trip and I started idly scrolling through Dimebag Daryl's Wikipedia page. And I found this story and it really moved me and I want to share it. So Daryl grows up in Texas with his brother, Vinny, and Vinny played drums and Daryl was given his first guitar at like the age of 12. And he like they loved Kiss and they loved Van Halen and they loved Van Halen more than any other band because Van Halen was like Vinny and Daryl. They were a brother on drums and then a brother on guitar. And so just like Eddie Van Halen, Daryl became this prodigy and they, he entered all these like guitar contests in Texas. It was simply after a while, like as a teenager, asked not to enter anymore because he just won them all. So their dad was a music producer for country music. They started making basically hair metal and his original last, like his original nickname was Diamond Daryl. But then as Pantera's sound got like harder and more of what we know, he changed it to Dimebag Daryl because, and this I actually think was pretty smart, no matter how much weed he was ever offered, he would never carry around more than a dime bag because he was afraid if he got caught with it, he would end up in jail. And by the way, considering it was the 80s and 90s when he was on tour in a tour bus with a, a metal band, that's pretty smart on Dimebag's part. I have <laughs> agreed, to say. agreed. So anyway, so they become the successful band. He, they never meet Van Halen. You know, it just never works out. Like they have a number one record, but they're always on the road. He never gets to meet Eddie in any sort of way. Pantera breaks up. And he starts this new band again with his brother on drums. But they're kind of like sad after the breakup of the band, whatever. And so two weeks before they're about to go back on the road in 2004, Eddie Van Halen calls him up and says, hey, we're ending our tour near you guys in Texas. How about we fly you and your brother to the show? And they're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So they fly Vinny and Daryl to the Van Halen show, you know, like they meet beforehand, they're having drinks together. Eddie has Daryl play his guitar for soundcheck. So he gets to play Eddie Van Halen's guitar for the soundcheck and rip through all his favorite Van Halen songs and Van Halen solos. And they're backstage talking after a while. And he's talking to Eddie about like, you know, his famous striped and strapped guitars, like the ones with tape, like the Frankenstrat and things like that. Um, 
and he's like, hey, I know you've been making a replica series of these. Would you give, could you get me a strap guitar? And Eddie says to him, which one do you want? Like everybody likes the red and black, you know, Frankenstrat diver down guitar. He's like, no, 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 man. My favorite one from when we were growing up was the Bumblebee, the black and yellow striped guitar that you, you pose with on the back of Van Halen too. He's like, all right, Daryl, I got you. I'll get you something. They play the show. They have the time of their life. He flies home. Like they fly him home and that's it. Like he called and left um, he, uh, in the plane home. His wife heard him say, if I died tonight, it wouldn't matter because I've done everything now. I've met Eddie Van Halen. Like it was the happiest that he ever was. And they go out on the road a week later. And then early in the tour, they're playing a tour stop in Columbus. Now, the last thing they go out on stage and the last thing that Dimebag would say to his brother Vinny before the start of a show in order to get them pumped up and remind them of where they came from as being kids in their room playing rock and roll, he would look back at his brother and yell out Van Halen and then kick into the first song, like the intro to the first song. So they're playing Columbus. He looks back at Vinny. He yells Van Halen and a crazy guy jumps up on stage and shoots him five times and kills him. His last words were Van Halen. So it's a week or so later, okay? And they're getting together to bury Dimebag Daryl back in Texas. And who pulls up but Eddie Van Halen has come to his funeral. And he walks into you know, the funeral home or wherever they're having, he walks in where they're having the funeral and he sees Dimebag's wife. He recognizes her from just having met her a few weeks earlier and he's carrying a guitar with him. And she's like, Eddie, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming. And he's like, I wanted to give this to you. And she's like, and like, they're like, I don't know, like they're in the room with his coffee. And he's like, I don't want to see him. I want to remember him like I did just happy and full of life. And just a rock and roll brother like me with me, you know? And she's like, I understand. And he turns to her and he goes, but I want him to have this. And he hands her his original oh, guitar. Bumblebee guitar. Uh. And he says to her, he was an original and an original can't have a replica. I want him to have the original. And he gave it to him. And he is dying bag. Daryl is buried with Eddie Van Halen's Bumblebee guitar to play for eternity. And dude, I read that and what he said to her. And I'm like, that is the most beautiful thing I have ever heard, man. Like that is like serious rock and roll brotherhood kind of stuff. And go, I am not a metalhead. Pantera, not on my heavy rotation. But that is beautiful no matter how you slice it. How about that? I'm kind of speechless, man. <laughs> All right, uh, well. maybe. I, I don't know where to go from there or how to transition into cross stitching in the pandemic. We are talking about pet cemetery later. So like, you know, we could, we, we are probing the depths of mortality and the, and there the beyond. You go. Uh, but I like, I was honestly moved by that. I think it's a beautiful story. And I also think surprising things that moved us might become a new segment. So there you go. For you, man, in lieu of cancer <laughs> update, we can just rotate back there you and go. forth. Um, okay. Okay, on to our interview today with Maggie Hendricks. Maggie is a 
broadcaster, sports writer. You've seen her work over the years everywhere from USA Today, Yahoo, The Athletic. But I saw her had, she'd actually sewn a pattern of Captain Marvel's logo. And I, I was like, oh man, that's really cool. And then I went to her Instagram and saw she was really into sewing. So I reached out and I said, hey, why don't you come on the show? Let's talk about it. And we get into it, man. We talk about uh, you know, how she was sort of self-taught. We talk about influencers that she would recommend you follow right now because of all the cool things they're doing and sharing. We talk about the sort of online community of sewing and crafts um, mm. enthusiasts. And we get into baking. I mentioned before, um, you know, like many people, she's been dabbling in cooking and baking uh, throughout the pandemic. So if you are if you are here for craft content, my friends, um, we are there for you. And after the interview, stick around. Our summer of Stephen King continues. Gareth and I are going to probe the fanciful and uplifting story of a main family. <laughs> yes, Pet Cemetery on the docket. Straight to your brain. How my fans feeling? Okay, you know me for balling and making jump shots, but I be moving the crowd like a honey gun shots. Let me start here. What what's been the bigger uh, pandemic? Uh, uh, you know, uh, passion for you, uh, sewing or baking? Well, they've each had their moments in the sun. Um, <laughs> Baking, I like right when the first the pandemic first started, I was doing a lot of baking. But as it's gotten warmer, I haven't been wanting to like, you know, turn my oven mm -hmm. on. But I have started making ice cream. My husband and I got an ice cream maker. And so like I started to make ice cream and that's really fun. I made sweet corn ice cream last week. Oh, so good. Sweet corn I so that you you bite in and you just taste like sweet corn. Yeah, like the like this like you know how at in the the very height of good corn from the farmer's market season when it's like when it's so sweet that you could almost eat it raw like it's mm. that corn and it's just it's all it's like really sweet and rich tasting oh it's so good does it's it like throw buttery you, does it throw you off to have something that has such a warm you know you're used to eating corn warm and then to have that taste cold does it mess with your mind at all i'm not sure i could i could i could I'm not sure I could handle things that are supposed to be sort of like savory parts of your meal as dessert or a different form of food. Yeah. It, once you taste it, you're like, oh yeah, I'm on board. I'm a hundred percent on board. It's, it was, it was just so rich and like, and just almost like buttery, almost like a custard. Oh, it's just, I, I highly recommend, highly recommend it. But I'm someone who also just really never, like I could never eat those like jelly beans that are, marshmallow or I, like for me when i have something oh, i don't in mind, like those either right right I, or, you yeah. know or, or like certain foods that are supposed to be i don't know it's like it's like they're it's like a, i'm getting a sneak attack from a flavor that i'm not used to in a different form i, I i'm gonna have to <laughs> take your word on word, word for it on sweet corn let's start with sewing and, and and that type of stuff maybe we can circle back to some of the you know baking food stuff that you've been you've been doing where did you learn to sew? Because this is kind of what led me to you. You were sharing some uh, some of your your projects on online. It, you know, got my attention. Uh, so, what's your history with with you know uh, with, with with sewing? And, and was there a certain person who kind of uh, you know gave you the the skill? No, I um I like I was playing around on Pinterest for a while, looking for crafts that I liked to do that I was able to do without having a sewing machine or without without some of the more difficult things. Um, 
And I just kept finding that there were lots of things that I liked that involved sewing. And so I, I, I mean, and I would, this was only like six years ago. Um, and so I looked around of where I could take a class to teach it because it's like, I do not come from a Martha Stewart family. My mom, <laughs> my mom says that her, she only has a kitchen because it came with her house. Like that's, that's the, the level mm-hmm. of domesticity I'm, I come from. So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to take a class somewhere because I know I can't teach it, learn it from like a family member or something like that. And so I took a class at a local um, sewing, like they, it, they were sewing studio and sold fabric and stuff like that. And um, I really liked it. And since then, I've just like, I, I just like trying things that are more difficult. Because even if I completely screw up, I every single project that I screw up on, I've at least learned something from. And I know the next time I do it, I'll do a better job at it. So, um, yeah, so I've been doing it. It's been about six years now, and I, I love it. Yeah, by the way, you might hear my wife blending something in the background. I apologize. It's one of those <laughs> one of those days. Uh, my mom was a good sewer, and so I picked up some stuff from her. I still am the sewer in my household. Like when my daughters have, um, you know, their teddy bear uh, rips, you know, uh, the hole rips in them, or or I, they have to put a patch on something. I usually jump into it, but I my skills stop at the machine level. Like I cannot use a sewing machine to save my life ever since home at class. I mean, I, I remember doing it back then and I just was, I was terrible at it. And I did see it on your Instagram that, you know, you, you've got a sewing machine there. Like how hard was it to pick up that specific skill? Because there is a true art and science to using that effectively to make things. A lot of it was, was trial and error. And it was a lot of like buying a lot as like, if there was a, a sale on clearance at Joanne's, buying as much of the cheap fabric that I could and like making little tiny like baskets or things like that and just getting to know my sewing machine. And it, and I think a lot of it is like, it's like getting to know your car. You know, there's always little quirks about your car. Even if you have a brand new car straight off the assembly line, you still have to get to know it. And it's a lot of the same thing on your sewing machine of like how fast you press the pedal and like, is it going to like, how does it like certain threads and not other threads and things, things like that. I'm actually, I'm thinking of upgrading my sewing machine fairly soon. And um, I, I'm already dreading like, oh God, there's going to be a whole getting to know you process. How will I handle it? <laughs> <laughs> What's your most ambitious project that you've, you've undertaken? Um, I made my mom a quilt a few years ago for Christmas and it was, the first quilt I ever made. And I was like, okay. And like most people, the first time they make a quilt, they'll make like a baby quilt or like, you know, like a, a small one. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make this quilt and it's going to be queen size, <laughs> a little bit larger. And it was, and it was a lot of work and it was, re- I mean, it was, it was just quite difficult, but I like also remember my mom's face as she was re- like, as she opened the box and realized what I made for her, it was pretty great. Um, I also, there's a couple dresses I've made that too, that have been really difficult, but like that I've used that I've worn to like family weddings and things like that. So I would say either, either the dresses or the quilts or the quilt. How much stuffing is too much stuffing for like the perfect quilt? I mean, it depends on what you want. Cause like in Chicago, when how cold our winters get so cold, (laughs) I am all for using 
using like the batting that's nice and thick and keeps you warm. Um, but like if I were making a quilt for somebody in Florida, I would probably change it up a little bit and not make it not make it too thick because I don't, you know, and I, I, I wouldn't want to if I'm making a present for somebody, I don't want to like sweat them out in it. So you make your own dress, your own clothes, something like that. What's the etiquette on? Do you have to do you tell people? Can you just say, hey, I made this? You have to wait for them to ask where you got it. Like it, it's a, you know, like, what, what's what's the proper? I feel like we're going to the Curb Your Enthusiasm stuff there. But uh, like, yeah. what's your rule on that? Um, it's, I mean, a little bit of it depends on who I'm talking to. Like, if it's a good friend of mine, I, I want to be like, oh, my God, look what I made. But like, like, say, like, when I'm at one of my like, when I'm at like the bar studio working out and I'm in a pair of leggings that I made, I will like I might hit like if somebody says like, oh, I like your leggings, I'll say, thanks. They turned out well. So then they have to ask, oh, you made them and not like, oh, my gosh, I made these. I know. Aren't they great? Kind of, you know, you kind of read the read the situation. If I made something, I would be, it would say I made this on it, like where you, everybody would have to know. Help me understand the difference between cross stitch, em, embroidery, needlepoint. Like when I, when I see something that like, like you shared, you had this awesome, I think it was a Captain Marvel thing that yeah. you would sew, like the logo there. W- what kind of uh, technique is that? And how do you just, how do I learn from you here to I distinguish those correctly? So cross stitch is a type of embroidery embroidery. And so like they use the same thread embroidery thread, but cross stitch is a very specific kind of embroidery where you're doing only one kind of stitch, which is tiny little X's or crosses. Yeah. And then, and then you like, and cross stitch is honestly almost like paint by paint by numbers. Right. Because you're like following a pattern and the, if the pattern says, okay, do five blue X's. Okay. You do the five blue X's and then above it, you do six red X's or whatever. Um, and that's one of the reasons I like it. So many of the other things I do, including my work, including writing, I have to be creative and I have to come up with, you know, what I want to do and how I want to make it. And I like that. I like being creative. But it's also nice at the end of the day to to kind of shut that off and just kind of say, yeah. okay, I'm not I'm not thinking hard. I'm just gonna follow the pattern, and make something pretty, and it'll look I'm, it'll look so nice on my wall. Yeah, well, and, I was gonna say, what do you do with them? Do you hang them up? Do you give them away? Do you throw them in a drawer somewhere just because of the you like to do the activity, but you aren't as worried about um, you know uh, keeping them? Like, what's your process and 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 what's the outcome? It's um, a little bit of it is I keep them in like there's a spot in my kitchen where we have like a where I have a seasonal cross stitch. So like right now it's a picture of like a, a it's like a, a looking down on a beach um, or like like last month I had one that said love is or for in June it said love is love, you know, for Pride Month. So I had like I'll make my seasonal ones and they'll go there. Um, sometimes I make them for other people and give them away. Um, and sometimes they're just for my, like the ones, like the uh, Captain Marvel one and the one um, that I'm working on right now, which is a pair of lungs. Um, I will, I, those will just go in my office. So mm-hmm. they're just, they're just for me. I may have to, uh, maybe I'll, my, my mom used to, I, I believe it was cross stitch my mom used to do. So she would always, uh, like when we had my first daughter, she did this really ornate 
thing for her wall. And I know she's been working on <laughs> our second daughter's almost four. She's been working on that. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. Um, but I made <laughs> oh, it so, a... Some of them take forever. Yeah. Like there, there's one I made for a friend of mine when she had a baby um, that took me four months and that was working on it every single night. So like some of them are really, really involved and look at, and like they're beautiful, but also they take a while. So, so it's okay to your mom, like, you know, and if it also might be embroidery, embroidery just means it's a bunch of different kinds of stitches. Cross stitch yeah. is just one particular kind of stitch. Working in sports, like, do you dabble in like, hey, I'm going to make a Cubs logo. I'm going to make a, um, you know, a, a Bears thing here or, or, you know, the sky or whatever. Like, or do you like to keep that separate? Like, shut sports out. This is my hobby. I want to focus on other interests. No, I mean, I don't have a problem with sports being in it. I don't think I've done. I cannot think of do it that I've done a sports one yet. Um, but I don't have a problem with it. And like, I have... Like on Etsy is where I find all of my um, all of my patterns, and so I know I have like a Cubs one saved on there, and yeah, like there there that's the fun thing now is that cross stitching is while it is like a very old habit a hobby, it is still a like people are doing very contemporary ones, and you can find some really gorgeous patterns with like funny quotes and like like you know Lizzo song lyrics and things like yeah. that. Yeah. I had a friend who he found someone online that takes your tweets and turns them into, uh, you know, like an embroidery pattern or, or whatnot. I think that's just really, uh, you, you get the feeling that in our connected, you know, Etsy driven world that people are finding new ways to put this, you know, you know, these skills to use all the time. Oh yeah. And I think there's, I think there's a couple things that, that drive that. If, first of all, I think that there's a whole lot of people who picked it up, picked up things like embroidery and cross stitch during the pandemic because it's a low cost hobby that you can pick up and you can do it at home. You can do it wherever, but um, you know, you can absolutely do it at home. But then there's also like the whole, this whole idea of craftivism and using your crafts to spread messages that you care about. Um, And like, I, I know that I've seen a few Black Lives Matter cross stitches hanging in people's windows in my neighborhood. So, like, I think there's just lots of things that are driving that. And it's it's really a, a it is a really great way to you, do something you care about and also use it to create the world that you want to see, you know? Uh, absolutely. And are there are there people you follow online that you just take a lot of inspiration from? Yeah, the, there's one main person, and luckily, and wonderfully, she's become my friend, which I feel very lucky about that. Um, her name is Shannon Downey, and she's known on Twitter as and on Instagram as Badass Cross Stitch, and she <laughs> is she is an embroidery and cross stitch person, and she like it like she's the first person I ever heard the term craftivism from, um, and I got to go, to go and do a couple of embroidery workshops with her, and she just is she just truly believes in using your art to create a better world and right now um she is she's touring the country in an rv and is is spreading the word and getting to do embroidery workshops socially distanced embroidery workshops with people all over the country and it's just a really she's just a really cool person who very much is a if you can dream it you can achieve it person and i just i love that about her yeah, I just followed her on Twitter. Highly recommend everyone go 
uh, check out her uh, her feed because there's lots of really cool stuff going on in that. Um, before we jump into the baking stuff, let me give you some sort of sewing speed round, um, if you don't mind. Yeah. What's your stance on thimble use? I don't. I've never felt the need to use them, um, but you know, more power to the people who if if it's going to help you sew, do it. <laughs> I have toe thumbs, and I could never fit into a thimble. I, that's part of the reason with me too. What's your callus situation then? Are you like, are you, have you reached the point where you're like Marge Simpson in that scene where she like shows off to Lisa that she can basically like light her hand on fire with nothing happening? <laughs> no, I, I've never, I've never had callus to like my hands are, are, are okay. And usually if, if I get to a point where my hands are starting to callus or get, or anything like that, I need to walk away anyway, because my brain is, my brain is, is usually too fried. So I better walk away from the piece or I'm going to screw it up. Let's have you power rank your uh, your crafty retailers between Joann's, Michael's, Hobby Lobby. Uh, I never go to Hobby Lobby because they don't treat their workers well. Um, so they're like number 87 out of three. Um, <laughs> and I would put Joann's above Michael's because uh, I just they have more fabric. I mean, they have fabric available. Um, but I just, I, I feel very at home at Joann's and also like we we're talking about supporting the things that are important to us in the world. They just use that, that whole big ribbon thing that, um, was done at the beginning of the MLB season. Joann's donated all that fabric and sewed it all so that it could be at every major league baseball stadium mm. to start the season. So that made me be like, you know what? You're the people I want to give my money to. So, <laughs> where, where do you stand on knitting? Have you tried it? I have not tried it because funny enough, like I, I might, I don't have great dexterity in my fingers. So like cross stitching and embroidery, you do like once you hold it in one specific way, but like the movement you need to do in your fingers, I, I don't think I'd be good at that. Hmm. No, that's interesting. I know some friends who knitting is like a totally different, I don't want to say totally different or, or whatnot, but I, I've got some friends that like, it's almost like a totally different mindset in terms of like why they do it, what they love about it. I, I don't know. I've, I've never, no one in my family's ever dabbled with it either. Maybe my grandma, but I don't, I don't remember. Um, my understanding is that it's very like, it's a very meditative thing because yeah. you're doing like the same kind of stitches and things like that again and again. And the people I know who do it love it for that reason, because of, of, of the, the, the like way when you focus on it, it's, it's a little, it, it, it's, it's almost like meditation. Yeah. I, I also just don't like wearing stuff that's like knit, like knitted sweaters and stuff. It's just not my favorite type of thing to put on. So it's like, yeah. it's like, oh, okay. Uh, speaking of which, um, what's your policy on making gifts now? Is it like, you know, you know, once you do, once you open that Pandora's box, is it hard to just say, Hey, I got you something at Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, versus making <laughs> you something for two months? Um, I mean, I kind of, like I said to my mom, I'm like, you know, you're never going to get a gift like the one I got, like the quilt again, just so you know. Um, cause it, it literally took me a year to do. So, um, you know, I kind of do, I kind of do a mixture at Christmas of, for, for my family, like a mixture of things that are bought and things that are, are made as long as I feel like as long as there's thought in a gift, then it, I mean, it really is the thought that counts. And when I get a gift that doesn't, isn't thoughtful, I don't care how much money you spent on it. It's not a great gift, you know? <laughs> right. 
okay, so let's talk a little bit about baking before we go. You mentioned making your own ice cream, um, you know, off the top. What are some other, like, what's your favorite thing to make? My wife bakes a lot. I'm terrible at it, but I get a sense that she loves the creativity of it. She likes finding something new, trying new things, baking, you know, you know, swapping out stuff to, to more healthy items and, and having that accomplishment of, oh, wow, I made these, you know, chocolate chip <laughs> muffins, but I swear they're good for you, even though they taste super decadent. Um, what are some of your go-tos and, and what do you love about it? I mean, my go-to is always chocolate chip cookie. It's like, I don't, I have my chocolate chip cookie recipe memorized. Um, and I've never, I've never had a complaint. You put nuts, um, you put nuts in those? No, I don't really. My niece has a, a very, very bad nut allergy. So even though she lives right. in Iowa now, um, I still rarely put, I still rarely put nuts in things cause it's just the habit of it. I don't, I don't put nuts in, in very much of anything that I bake. Um, like one of my very favorite things to make, and I do this every new year's Eve, um, is I make chocolate souffle and oh, it's so good. And I, I'm, I wish I didn't have the knowledge of how good it is and how I know how to make it because there are times when I'm, when it's like, you know, June and I'm like, I can make I can make souffle for, <laughs> for dessert tonight. And I have to like talk myself out of it to make sure that I'm not eating chocolate souffle too often. Um, I mean, there's like, I just, I like the challenge. I like trying things that are, are difficult um, so like I'm, I made a cherry pie for Christmas for my family this year. Mm. The first time. Um, yeah, I just, I like anything that's like, it, it, it's really going to be difficult, but then I'm going to get to brag that I did it. That's my favorite thing to bake. Do you have a favorite like TV or internet cooking personality? I feel like you can learn a lot about someone by who they, who they um, gravitate toward in that space. Man, I just like British stuff. I, I mean, it starts <laughs> right. with the Great British Bake Off. I love my Great British Bake Off. But man, I just like anything British, I start watching. And so that includes baking things. And I do I do just love my Mary Berry. I think she's lovely. I used to love Nigella Lawson. I mean, I know she's had kind of, I feel like, um, a more polarizing last few decades. But when she first came on the air, I felt like she had this really contemporary vibe about her. Um, and I, and like, like you said, there's something about someone with a British accent talking about food that just made them sound so much more credible, credible than like right. Emeril or whoever was on the air. Right. Like, yeah. And another, another, um, baking or cooking person that I love, but she does bake too, is, um, Samin Nosrat from, uh, who did, uh, salt, fat, acid, heat. I just love her. I just love her. And I love how much she loves food. And like that just makes me feel like, yeah, that's right. You should love food. All right. <laughs> because because it's good. Food is good. You know, it's, and I just I love everything about her entire style of cooking and teaching cooking and all of that. What's your all time sort of like Pinterest fail slash nailed it moment in the kitchen like where you really tried something and it just really turned out to be a disaster? Well, the two times that I've tried to make eclairs, the first time my eclairs like completely, they were so flat. They, they didn't puff up at all. They just were terrible. But my, my pastry cream was delicious. And then the second time that I made it, my eclairs were amazing. They puffed up perfectly and <laughs> my pastry cream split and was a complete failure. Oh. So, so I have yet to get it where they're 
both right. And one of these days, one of these days, I'm going to make a really good, a really good uh, pastry cream and a really good eclair and they'll actually work out right. I believe, hashtag believe, I'm in your corner. It's going to get done. Uh, my, my mom once, she had a woman from, um, you know, from Southeast Asia who uh, stayed with us and she tried to make this like pumpkin where you take like pumpkins and inside you make it like pudding within, but it didn't, it never sat. And so you just like yeah. carved up the pumpkin and it like ran out as this like semi warm, like, uh, like goopiness. And I watched my mom try to be polite and eat it. And I just was like, I can't mom. Like, I, I, I don't care. Like, I, you know, I just can't do it. Um, very early in my days of baking, I tried to make, my dad has diabetes. So I tried to make him a sugar-free pumpkin pie and it was based, it didn't set. And it was basically like pumpkin pie soup and a graham cracker crust. It was so bad. And God bless my dad. He, he was a dad. He was, you know, he did the thing <laughs> of where he was going to try to make, you know, his baby made it for him. So he was going to eat it. And the rest of the family was just like laughing hysterically. But my dad, sure. My dad was there. Yeah. I mean, if my wife had made that pumpkin uh, soup, I would have eaten it. But like not somebody who's just living with my mom. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. Um, so to close, what would you say to people who I think as the pandemic has gone on, you know, we had that initial burst and people were trying new things and some of them have stayed with it. Others have sort of petered out. But I think there is that pull. And I, I think right now, lots of people are continuing to sort of say, hey, should I be stretching out of my comfort zone, trying something new? As someone who's you know taught yourself um, to do so many of these amazing you know types of craft or activities, what, what would you say to empower someone who's maybe in their own head or afraid to get started to like go seize the day and, and, and take this on? Okay, so I'm going to read you a quote that is hanging on my wall. And the quote is from Corita Kent. She was a nun and then ended up leaving the church. Um, but she was this amazing pop artist who did all of this kind all of this different kinds of art um, that was really for the people and taught people because she wanted everybody to, to kind of find the artist within them. So this is the quote that's hanging on my wall. It says, doing and making are acts of hope. And as that hope grows, we stop feeling overwhelmed by the troubles of the world. We remember that we as individuals and groups can do something about those troubles. So like that, I actually, I was, I was in London in January and I was walking through the Victorian Albert Museum and in the gift shop. And I saw that quote and it like knocked me back because it just, it absolutely encapsulates everything I love about making things. Because here's the thing, you can have a really terrible day. You can have all kinds of terrible pandemic nonsense. You can have your kids either are going back to school or not going back to school or whatever kind of stress you are dealing with. And you can still make something and then you have no, no idea until you do it how much better you feel. Because even all of that stuff is still going to exist but you also made something and you have shown yourself that you are capable. So that's, that's like my whole feeling on, on making is even like yesterday I had a terrible day and I was really upset. And so I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to do anything like two inch or quit kit, but I just cut up a bunch of fabric for a quilt and it, it really did make me feel better. So just do stuff. And if, if anybody in the world wants to, like, wants help finding a craft, 
please talk to me on Twitter because I I want to help you. Clearly, I am passionate about this stuff. When you hit the ground, life's just one big jump shot. One big you jump shot, on, Or you might be all cash money. So try to maintain and refrain from the strength. And don't get lost in the salt. Don't get caught up in it. Life's just one big jump shot. And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all do interesting things. Things that express their interests and personality and passions. And then we, the fans and the media, tell them, you're being a distraction. Get back to watching game film. That's ridiculous. So on this show, we end every week by telling you what's been distracting us. And look, if you're not a Stephen King fan, we got to say sorry. Gareth and I, <laughs> since um, <laughs> we had Michael Rothman on the show and we ranked our books, we have um, we have been dabbling with some rereads this summer. I got to say, I've, been, I've enjoyed it. Gareth, I, I polished off Revival um, uh, you know, after Pet Cemetery, I know you haven't read it yet, but I highly recommend that book. And, and, and like the first like newer Stephen King that like really kind of grabbed me and, and shook me a little bit, which was, which was, mm-hmm. um, it kind of f- put some wind in my sails on this project that we're doing. But I'm we're excited gonna... about this now. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Um, but we're going to talk Pet Cemetery today. What, 1983? Is that right, Gareth? I always associate Pet Cemetery with late 80s, and it is it not. It is 83. Um, it's the movie was 89, so I always kind of assumed it was like 87. Did and you I, read the story behind its publication? I mean, w- w- which one? That he like didn't want to do it? That he he like put it in a drawer yeah, he, and was like, whatever? He wrote it and thought it was too dark to go out. I mean, a couple of his friends, I think uh, Peter Straub and... You know, his wife had both said it was good and worthy of publication, but he just he thought it was too dark. And then his lawyer called and said, based off his original, I think it was his original contract with Doubleday, uh, they had written in something that basically said he would have to pay taxes on all the money. Some there was some tax thing that they had written in there. There was a loophole that basically said if he left, he was going to have to pay all this extra tax money. And so the lawyer was basically like, to get around this, if you just give them one more book, they will basically ignore that. And then you can leave the contract and go somewhere else. And so he just said, fine, and just sent them Pet Cemetery and was like, you can have this and I'm gone. And that was why it got published. That's pretty crazy. Um, right. And and what a run he had had, right? When you talk, we talked a couple weeks ago about like that '70s run where you had mm-hmm. Carrie and Salem's Lot and The Stand and The Shining and Cu- you know, well, I guess Cujo came a little bit later, but you had Dead Zone. Well, then the Dead Christine. Zone, exactly. You um, know, all the classics. I wanted to start here with you, Gareth. Mm. On the reread, this thing scare you, bro? Oh. A ton. First of all, it struck me how little of it I remembered from when I was 13. That is number one. Number two, reading this book as a parent is an entirely different experience than reading this as a teenager. Um, This was a genuinely terrifying book, a genuinely terrifying look at fatherhood, a terrifying way that a man can totally lose control of his family and himself and really just destroy that family in the most profound way possible. So, okay. I I did not find it scary this time. 
I would huh, describe okay. it as just increasing dread, if that makes sense. Like, for example, like Church the Cat, in the book, it's so much more of just like a stupid cat. Like, it's like a dirty, gross thing, whereas in the movie, it's like legitimately terrifying. And I forgot mm. just how short the entire gauge comes back. Oh, by the way, we're, we're to spoil the shit out of this book. I'm sorry if you haven't read it. Um, uh, this is a 40 like, years. Uh, yeah, I was going to say a 37 year old seen book, either so. movie, uh, right. which I do want to get into as well. But I, I just was taken aback at how short the gauge stuff was at the end. I mean, I think that it's the final, a, the final act is incredibly fast. You know, yeah, and it's oh, also totally. like him, basically the amount of time that he spends climbing into the graveyard to dig up gauge. I mean, first of all, like the whole, mo the whole book is basically an example of Chekhov's gun where it's like, that's a pet cemetery. Strange things happen there. This is a road where all the trucks fly down it going too fast. Be a shame if something happened to one of your kids or that cat there. <laughs> right. and, and like, you know, and then you just see it happen from there. So in a way, like we're spoiling this, but it's pretty obvious what we're getting into from the get go in this in this book. And um, but yeah, like him after the death of Gage, his two year old son, him digging up Gage's body. I feel like that took as long or longer than in the book to describe than Gage actually being back alive and going on a murderous rampage as a a possessed zombie child. Oh, so. totally. And I think that's what I'm getting at it it's the mm -hmm. slow descent of a parent into insanity thinking this thing that you know is not going to work is going to solve your problems failing to deal with grief um being sort of like a wash in grief really and finally i guess like more <clears throat> not even so much failing to deal with it more like going so far down you're looking for the hole on the other side of it um yeah. and then the, the treks back and forth in the woods to like you said, the, to dig up the grave, to go to the pet cemetery. The first time they go to the pet cemetery, um, to bury church, all that stuff is again, it's it's eerie. It's filled with dread, menace. Um, but I was shocked that the book did not hold the scares for me because if you had said to me, "What's the legacy of Stephen King's Pet Cemetery?" before we reread it, I would say, "Well, it's probably the scariest book, right?" I mean, that's the consensus from a lot of people, including including King. King. Yeah. 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 The father who does all this Lewis Creed, who loses control of everything and goes crazy in a brilliant turn by King is a doctor. So of all people, he should know about death and what it means and that you can't really come back from it. Um, I love the fact that in all this is a father losing his mind. Um, and lots so I of want that you to proto... Real quick, and lots of that proto Stephen King religion and faith versus, you know, people of science that you're going to see yeah. flair in a lot of other books is is in here a lot more than in the movie adaptations. I think within the pages, you get a little bit more of the tension that exists between Lewis and his wife about, okay, are we going to actually explain death and him being like, no, it's part of life. Like it's mat he's matter of fact about it until he has the personal connection to it, and then it just becomes you know, from a sensory level, totally overwhelming. Um, uh, and, and we can talk later about whether that is 
because of, I mean, the real push pull on the reread is, you know, fate versus choice, right? Like, you know, how much are you pulled in by the power of the cemetery or what lies around that? And how much are you choosing? And where is that line? Well, that, I mean, we could get into that. And so, but before we do, and I guess as a segue into that, what I want to ask you is, is that to you on this read, what changed it from being scary to more of a sense of dread? Like in some ways he was absolved of making this mad, insane choice. Um, there was no free will because he was under the spell of these ancient mystical powers and things like that. Yeah, we got to talk about. And these, did that frustrate you? We got to talk about these powers, bruh. Because okay, well, so like, it, it, look, so everyone listening to this, we've clearly just jumped into this. We didn't bother with the plot summary. Again, it's thirty-seven years old. Uh, There's two movies made of it. Dude lives Whatever. by pet cemetery. Kid dies. Dude buries kid. Kid comes back evil. That's the book. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. So get into the powers. I think on the reread, I was utterly shocked at how there's all this reference to the Wendigo. And I guarantee yes. when I read this, and I want to say Pet Cemetery for me was like a seventh grade read, maybe eighth seventh or eighth grade. grade. Yeah, yeah. There's no Google at that point. And so, like, I'm, uh, I mean, there it probably is, but like, you know, I don't know. I'm using the, Alta Vista. Sergey <laughs> you know? and Larry were in a garage at that point. So we're moving on. So I, I guarantee I saw the Wendigo references and just was like, I don't know what that is. I don't have to know that there, there's a cemetery where stuff comes out. Yep. And it's not part of the 1989 movie and it's not part of the most recent movie, if I'm not mistaken. Interesting. I just think this is the thing that's right there for the next adaptation of this, whether it's television, whether it's miniseries, whether it's movie, and we may not get that for a while since the last one just bombed mm. or underwhelmed. I just think go into that, like show the spirits more, like creep me out with something in the woods. A la, you know what I'm picturing, dude? I'm picturing like um, Pan's Labyrinth. Like, like here comes mm. the thing that finds you and brings you into this world of, insane possibilities that might solve your problems and you can't tell if he's friend or foe that's there in the book it's nowhere in the adaptations and i kept being like i want to see more of this shit like i honestly it's really interesting i couldn't get it out of my head in terms of how great would it be to like because you google the images of it and it's like all this horrifying fan art and you're like clearly something about this entity connects with the readers and I think they want more of it. And I guess I'm just saying, rather than keep remaking this movie and be like, oh, now it's the kid. Now it's the older kid who dies. Like, maybe less of that whole thing and more of just what's beyond the woods, you know? Yeah. Okay. So in this, the Wendigo and what the legend is, is that these were an ancient Micmac Indian burial ground that, quote unquote, the ground turned sour because they buried what was assumed to be cannibals there. And then it was assumed that they buried the cannibals there because uh, the Wendigo was motivating that. It, like, it's an that. entity that like makes you cannibalistic that like po basically poisons and toxifies 
the human mind is the way I took it. Yes. And again, and it, cool and as again, shit. Like, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's described as like 50 feet tall with a crazy tongue and no ears, but instead of ears, it has like curling ram's horns and it's got like a ram skeleton for a head. Um, Bro, I'm looking yeah. at the cover of this book that just has a cat on it and I'm like, give me the horn thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And look, I, yeah. And I'm not saying the book doesn't work. I uh, I want to say we sound I'm sounding negative on the book. I love this book. It's my still I would say it's a top 5 Stephen King, but I just left saying that was way more of the novel than I ever imagined, and I don't know why someone hasn't said I'm going to remix the elements of Pet Cemetery. I mean, well, shit, they made the Pet Cemetery 2. I mean, with, with right. like, a uh, dude from Highlander running around, like, burning people's face off with motorcycles. So it's not like this is so sacrosanct you can't <laughs> play with the source material. Correct. And also, like, I don't know, the Wendigo, even before you see what it looks like and understand it fully, is present in what motivates the neighbor across the street to take the cat out there originally. Um, you know, he talks about it like, I don't know what possessed me to do it, but I have a feeling I know. Um, and its presence is there at the end. You know, it makes him fall asleep when he, Lewis gets home with the body and they know what he's going to do with it. It makes his wife wife's car break down as she's racing home to try to stop all this from happening. It is a huge not just presence, but plot device at the end of this book. So, and that yeah. stuff's insane because it's like, hey, there's no rental cars in Chicago because of the Windigo. <laughs> right, yeah, right, 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 right. Um, I will say, did you see the movie, the '89 movie? I've never seen either of the movies again because I can read as much horror as possible, but I just can't watch it. There's something about that line that really messes with me so it is what it is so okay i'm fascinated by this so so when you when you read the book you don't picture judd as fred gwynn from the monsters well i do because i've heard that clip from listening to the losers club enough now after michael Rothman has been on the pod shout out the losers club and i've also seen the pictures online but I don't picture Lewis. I picture Lewis in my own way. I picture the house in my own way. All of that stuff. Yeah, it's impossible to untether Fred Gwynn from this character for me. And I, I mm. would say if you were to if you if we you said to me, give me the best casting in all of the Stephen King movies, he would be like top five for sure. I mean, up there well, with, also, with and like, I've spent a lot of time Spacer, in Maine. You know? Yeah, no, no. And I've spent a lot of time in Maine, and I've heard the clip of him saying, sometimes dead is better. Like, he nailed the Maine accent. Nailed it. Um, and that's hard to do. So, And just, like, and that blend of dude who's kind of inviting, but also annoying, but, <laughs> all you know, right. a, a guy who's seen too much. Uh, and is like weary about life, but is still like, you know, hasn't quite given up. I don't know. It, it, I do like the character both in the book and in the movies, especially the first movie. 
Um, mm-hmm. The problem with the first movie is that they just didn't have a the great lead. Like they're Lewis. I mean, if you put, you know, Jeff Bridges in that role, is this like an all time horror? classic i mean maybe because i think they nailed a lot of the elements i mean it's really hard to get the little scary little kids right and i don't think that quite plays but some of the other aspects of it are really good um but i don't know and i thought judd the only weird stuff is like in the book there's you know the demons that come back are like yo judd your wife (laughs) like yeah your friends and i'm like but it's a two-year-old saying that you know (laughs) like like she took it in the ass from your friends. You're like, what? Did you think that was real or a lie? I think it was real. um, You did, but I thought it was a lie because I thought all the other stuff that he said earlier was real. Like when he told the story about when Billy came back after world war two and then everything he was saying to them was real. And so like whatever the Wendigo possesses this being with, was real. Here's the other thing though, and this jumped out to me reading Pet Cemetery and then quickly thereafter The Shining. Because when post death Gage is on his killing spree, and when Jack Torrance is on his killing spree and possessed by the spirit of the Overlook Hotel, both of them go through a moment when the people they love look at them and their face distorts into all the different faces of all the dead things that they've gone through. And it's, and it's obviously, it's obvious it's a trope that Stephen King loves. And I also think he was, you can see in these books, he is building up to it. And that I think is basically both those books, that thing is a dress rehearsal for it. And it's shape shifting and face changing and things like that in Pennywise the Clown. The other thing that I was fascinated by, you mentioned it, because I think it is a very complicated story structure, um, and then it jumps back and forth and whatever else. The thing I was shocked by reading this is how it jumps forward in time from they're at the house and it's okay to Gage is dead, we're at the funeral. And then you hear the story of the death in reverse in sort of flashback format from always. Mm-hmm. I did not remember it that way. It clearly doesn't take place in the movies that way. And it was a real I found myself fascinated with I found myself really into that section of the book. Um less from a story very smart yeah, narrative choice. Less from yes. a story perspective, more from a like a a stylistic perspective. I was like, "Oh, that that's interesting that he's doing this. Um let's see if it works." And I and I was pleasantly surprised that it did. Right. But yeah. Again, though, talking about things is like leading up to it. I don't think other than that choice and maybe a couple of others, like this was not a very complicated book. Like this is a pretty straight line. And again, like everything is pretty foreshadowed. Like, oh, the first day of school, a kid gets horribly run over by a car and starts the messaging of like, stay out of the pet cemetery, you know? And like, then that be, and again, I view that person dying very differently than you do because you've seen the movies where that became a trope, correct? Yeah, in the in the first movie the dude the ghost like makes a joke at one point. Like it's just it's such a strange thing and the Zelda stuff in the first movie, I think some people are really 
afraid of. I'm just not like the sister. I mm-hmm. I don't think it works. It's like bad makeup. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I I actually like how um intimate the story is. Like it's a small story. You know, few characters. It's the story of a family and one extra guy, basically. Yeah, well, and one kind of signature temptation and choice that's in front of them. It's it, to me, it reminds me a lot of The Shining in that way. It reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of Revival in that way, which I know you haven't read, but which is really just a few set pieces in the sort of intertwined lives of two characters and the sort of mm-hmm. connection and and ultimately the friendship and then ultimately the 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 animosity between them. And that's not a perfect book. I I really enjoyed it. But I remember leaving that book and going, hey, in hindsight, everything narratively made sense. And I think there are a lot of other Stephen King books where it gets so bloated that you go, I don't know why we spent 150 pages on this. And this is not... Tommy Knockers, I'm looking in your direction. (laughs) Right. And And that's not to say that King is bad when he writes long. I, I'm on the record. It is my favorite book of his. It's the Stand I is your the favorite stand. book. Yeah, yeah. He can he can pull that off in a way others can't. But I'm thinking of books that are, you know, 800 pages, 700 pages, 600 pages, that maybe 350, 400 would have would have gotten it done. Or maybe if the story yeah. had been less um, broad or sprawling. It might have been a more focused character study, which is always a thing King got knocked on, right? It was like so much plot, not so much character. Well, I think there is a lot of character there. There's just always a lot of plot there, too. And it's it, for me, it's it, those books where he, he has the right balance of both. Because it mm-hmm. is a great example of each of those characters is gets the devotion to that. Even Henry Bowers, like he, he spends the time with them. You can't say he didn't develop those characters. He didn't show those motivations, but he just doesn't Mm. always, he doesn't always pull that off with some of these broader, larger books. Right. I, I just, I do also love that this one is not long. It's focused and it's almost pulpy in that way. You know, like it feels like, he wrote one of the books that he loved growing, would have loved to read growing up. Um, also, and I talked about this because I got really hung up on this. Um, you know, just reading this book about a father who's making all the wrong choices for his family and for his kids around death while you have cancer. Like, yeah, that also might have contributed to sort of my being freaked out by it. Because I've talked to my kids a fair amount about death in the last year. Um, And I think they understand it. We don't dwell on it. We try not to come back to it. But do do you do the main accent? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, but I I, I said said to Amy, like, one of the things that I... Wait, wait, real quick. For our audience who may be new after our doc last week, I'm allowed to make these jokes, right? We've established this on the show. This is what we do. Brad, I only plowed through it because I was in the middle of a point and trying to finish, not because I was offended by it. Um, What I really took from this book, besides the Wendigo, is like, death is the boogeyman in this story. And that is what was so interesting to me. And like, most of what motivates this is Lewis Creed's inability to deal with death 
and or explain it. You, at first, you think it's his ability, inability to explain it to his daughter or his family or because of his wife's problems with Zelda. He, she doesn't want to deal with it. But really, it's his inability to deal with death. And in that way, death becomes the ultimate monster in this. And it's kind of fucking awesome for that. You know, like, like death is something that we all have to deal with and it's right in front of us. Um, and so turning that into the monster in a horror novel is really cool. Yeah. And the other monsters exist, you know, the, you know, the dead cat, the, the story of the, you know, the, the, the Wendigo, the, yeah, the guy that's yep. right back, but you're right. It, it's really just about a choice. How much horror would you roll the dice at maybe getting if if there's a version of of a you know hey I could bring someone back um, that could work out and I think that's what's fascinating too is like it just mm-hmm. never works out you know like they don't right. th- there's not like oh well well Billy did it and he was fine <laughs> everybody right. knows it's bad but it's the temptation you know and, and look that speaks to a lot of King's themes at this period too like addiction and um. You know, you know, just doing things you know you shouldn't do. Uh, so, look to close out here. Where would this change your rankings? I, I believe I, ha- I had this like fourth or fifth when we ranked our books. You did not have it in your top five. I did not have it in my top five. It would be in my top five. I don't. Let me think. I it, The Stand, Shining, um, Dead Zone. Um, and hell, whatever I forgot, this would take that that place. You didn't have Firestarter, did you? No, I don't think I did. Okay, I just bought that book. Um, and I'm like, why did I buy this? Am I going to really sit down and read Firestarter? I guess maybe I, I should. Dude, it's the MK Ultra novel. You have to. It's like until he wrote eleven twenty two sixty three. That's as peak boomer as he could get. I got. So. Uh, I got a lot of, uh, I ordered a few more last night. I got a lot coming or, you know, right. There we go. All right. Well, Hey, this was fun. I'm glad we did. I mean, look, the book is not fun, but it's a good yeah, read. Well, <laughs> I got some final thoughts. I want your final thoughts on book versus movie. And just to let it rip on that either version, whatever you got left. Yeah, I mean, full disclosure, I saw like 99% of the movie on a plane. I, and mm-hmm. then I, I've seen the ending on YouTube, so I've seen the movie, of the, of the remake. Um, mm-hmm. I saw the original. Uh, I think the book is miles ahead of either adaptation. Um, mm-hmm. I don't... I think, and I think I've said this before, I think the movies, if you could blend the elements, if you take the lead in the second movie and put him in the first movie and you could... Or you could keep Gwyn in the you know versus Lithgow, and he had the style of the second movie, but some of the scares from the first, like I think the cat is scarier. I think the end is scarier. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that stuff's cool. I just again the the secret sauce of this book to me is just the growing sense of dread. It's almost an inverse yep. of The Shining. The, the the movie The Shining is not what I would consider to be a scary movie. But it's a horrifyingly dread-inducing movie that just it it's a sensory experience. Like as it goes forward, you get immersed in it, and that's why I think all that you know, whether it's real or perceived, all that stuff about wow, is it 
is the spatial issues within the hotel real? Like, was Kubrick like putting walls in different places and moving furniture around just to give you a sense of subconscious uneasiness? Yeah, I mean, if you're sitting watching The Shining for two hours in a row, you're going to be sucked into that world. And I feel like that's the way this is with the book. The movie's trying to make a movie version of this. And I, I just, I don't think I, I love can. what you said to me on the phone once about The Shining, it, the movie. Like, it just drowns you in atmosphere. It's not a lot of, like, yeah. big jump scares. But, like, you get, between the music and the way it was shot, like, it is just you are surrounded by the atmosphere. And so that, I think that's a really good way of putting it. So. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I, I think this movie is, or I think this book is a lot of, I think this book is well worth the the read. I would go watch the movies if you like scary movies. I just don't, I think you've got to compartmentalize them as just being what they are, you know? Hmm. And in a way significant because it's one of the earlier horror movie, mainstream horror movies, Directed by a woman, the nineteen eighty nine version. Sure. So, also look, that counts for something. Go listen to the "We Hate Movies" episode on Pet Cemetery Two, which is an all time podcast candidate. Oh, really? <laughs> it's so funny. What are you doing next? Are we? We still got to do. We said we were going to do The Shining. We said we're going to do Dark Tower. Let's do Dead Zone and The Shining. I'll order Dark Tower, and then we'll reassess. Oh, we got to do um, Salem's Lot. I've never read Salem's Lot. And I have to reread it. But I yeah. just want to find the right version to order. Okay. So. All right. Well, and with that, let's give a shout out to our guest, Maggie Hendricks. Go check her out on Twitter. Uh, go check her out on Instagram. She's sharing uh, her sewing projects up there from time to time. And uh, Gareth, any shout outs from you? Shout out Eddie Van Halen for giving Dimebag that guitar to play forever. I couldn't uh, end it more eloquently. And in the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers. Say booty. <laughs>